chapter 2, I'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Father, help us see the intended meaning through your apostle, Paul, of this text. Help us feel it by the work and the mercy and the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit in us and amongst us. And so to that end, help me teach. Help me be clear to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Remember, right before this, that overarching Christian command has come. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, one clear thing that that means specifically is verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, most of you know who Tim Challies is. I read a lot of what he writes. He's a brother in the Lord from Canada, gifted writer, loves Jesus. I woke up the day after the election, less than two weeks ago, and on my email, he wrote stunning words, began something like, I hoped I would never ever have to write these kinds of words because he and his wife, Eileen, found out that the day before that their 20-year-old son who was at college, at Boyce College, also with their daughter and with their son's fiance, they were playing some kind of game and their son collapsed and died. And in that email, less than two weeks ago, he went on to say this. Yesterday, Eileen and I cried and cried until we could cry no more. 
until there were no more tears left to cry. Then later in the evening, we looked at each other in the eye and said, we can do this. What he meant was verse 14 of Philippians 2. We can do this and not grumble. It goes on. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation. Because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We can do it like Christians. Like a son and a daughter of the Father who knows what it is to lose a son. We know there will be grueling days and sleepless nights ahead. But for now, even though our minds are bewildered and our hearts are broken, our hope is fixed. And our faith is holding their son who was a Christian. Our son is home. So here's the question. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Is it really that important? To watch our hearts concerning grumbling, murmuring, lack of gratefulness to God. The second half of our passage answers that question. Yes, it's really important. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to begin this morning with the second half verse 16b to verse 18, to see the importance of this command. And then we'll come back to the seriousness of how we are to live. So the flow of the passage, it's simple. It goes like this. Do all things without grumbling. Now jump down to verse 16 in the middle of it. Why? So that. There, there, here's the why. So that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud, or I may literally boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So, Paul says, obey this, live your life this way, so that I, Paul, may boast at the judgment day. So that at the judgment day, there, Philippian Christians, it will be shown that my work as an apostle, as a missionary, as a preacher, as a teacher, has not been in vain or fruitless. 
which implies if there is no fruit in you, Philippians, the fruit particularly of verses 14 to 16, it would mean then Paul's preaching ministry is non-effective in them. Now I'm going to pause and I want us to get a glimpse of Paul's understanding of the preaching, teaching, ministry. And why he can say what he just said there without shame. That I want to stand at Judgment Day to boast about you, Philippians. First, he writes this in Romans 15. Don't turn there yet. He says, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He says, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason, here's the word again, to boast of my work for God. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 10, Paul writes concerning the teaching and the preaching ministry in the church. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul's view of the teaching and preaching ministry is rather sobering. He says, first, all true ministry is to be based on the only valid foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And the preaching and teaching ministry then, on top of that, is to be of such a quality that it's, it's like gold or silver, precious stone, so that it will stand the test of fire on that future day. And he's not done. J jump down a few verses to chapter 4. 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 1, he says, Okay then, this is how one should regard us. Preachers and teachers, Peter and Apollos and myself. 
and others. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards. Now, the, the, the steward was the slave. This is a very bright person to whom the slave master has turned everything over to him. To run all of his finances, to pay everybody. He, he's in charge of that. But he uses this word here and says, well, it's not about economics and the finances, but we, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. The gospel, the truth of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, trustworthy. That's stunning because listen to what he goes on to say. But with me, Corinthians, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. His conscience is clean, this moment of writing anyway. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says, look, even if a ministry of the Word has the approval of people, maybe many people, whether it's you, the Corinthian church, or whether I, Paul, myself, judge myself and approve of myself, he says, this would not mean that we have God's approval. It does not necessarily mean that it will go well. On the day of the Lord, all of that is into the hands of the Lord of being faithful with the mysteries of God. One more. Paul writes Second 2 Corinthians 1.14 Just as you did partially understand us that, here it is, this is biblical theology here, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you, Corinthians, will boast of us. And we will boast of you. In all things, do not grumble so that I may boast on the day of the Lord of you. This is Paul's earthly life. This is his purpose. He lives each day in light of that coming called in the New Testament day of the Lord because he knew that then the final results of his ministry as evidenced in the lives of his converts it's going to be revealed. Philippians 
Your blamelessness. You're refusing to grumble because of your trust. Because of your holding fast to the gospel, to the word of life. That'll be revealed and that'll be the basis of Paul's boast on that day. It will demonstrate that Paul's strenuous running and laboring for the gospel and for them, the Philippian church, was fruitful. Not mere professions of faith or signing a card or asking Jesus to come into your heart or being a good church attender and I pay my tithes. But lives of faith. Working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Doing life as hard as it can get without grumbling. Now, if living this Christian life has not been made serious enough by Paul's words, listen to what he goes on to say in verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay. Verse 17 there. It's a progression that now just pushes beyond what he just said. In other words, look, I want to boast, I want to be proud that... I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And now he takes that point. He pushes it further. So let, let me just paraphrase it first. We'll come back to it. Here's my paraphrase of it. Philippians, not only that I may boast that I did not labor in vain, but even if the worst comes by my being condemned to death here in Rome because of my gospel ministry, Nevertheless, I will rejoice because you Philippians are my fruit. You were shown to be real. Your faith working itself out without grumbling is a genuine burnt offering, a sacrifice upon which my life being poured out as a martyr is a drink offering poured over the top of that. And that's worth rejoicing about. That's what he says. Notice the phrase. Poured out as a drink offering. Okay. Paul's using that as a metaphor which is based upon the Old Testament sacrificial system. A drink offering refers to wine or olive oil that is poured over the burnt offering. The bull or the lamb that you offered and gave to the priest and they appropriately killed it and then put it to cook on the fire and goes up into the nostrils of God and to complete the sacrifice you get the wine you get the oil and it's poured on top of the burnt offering to complete it and when Paul says that my life is a 
poured out as a drink offering. He's alluding to his possible martyrdom where his blood will be spilled. In other words, his execution because of faithfulness to the gospel would be that libation, that drink offering poured out on your offering, Philippian church, the bull or the lamb. The more significant offering, which represents your faith in Jesus. And I'll complete it with my death and it's worth rejoicing over. If you are walking with Christ as unblemished lambs, Philippians, then my death, it'll be added to your sacrifice. And let us both rejoice in that. He takes it seriously. And so, now let's go back and see what it is that he's taking so seriously. What lifestyle will lead to Paul boasting? The answer is verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, got to grasp this. Paul's not pulling language out of thin air. He's getting his language from the Old Testament description of the wilderness generation under Moses. When he says without grumbling, Paul's point here is not, this is not his main point at all. Don't grumble and dispute with one another. No, it could be, there's, there could be sin in that. That's not his point. He is referring to one's grumbling and anger. Doubting God. The second word there in the ESV, where they translate it disputing, it refers to the inward reasoning of the mind which we all do all the time. It's the word dialogismon. Let me say it again and see if you hear it. It's the word dialogue, gizmon. It is the word from which we get in English the word dialogue. And in this context, it's used as the internal dialogue going on in the head. Why take us out of Egypt? Just to die here. Grumble, grumble. In other words, it is this internal dialogue. Not merely just figure it out. It, it means where the person is judging God. It's wrong. Your ways are wrong. When such internal reasonings begin to express themselves externally, they become grumbling, which is the other word 
uses here. Do all things without grumbling against the providence of God in your life. In the Old Testament context, it sheds light, therefore, on Paul's point, because biblical people, like the Philippians, they know exactly what he's referring to. The Israelites, during the wilderness wanderings, their constant unbelief and complaining and grumbling, and that internal unbelief kept finding its expression in their, in their grumbling against Moses. Paul's word is clear. Don't grumble like Israel did during the 40 years in the desert. When they were enslaved in Egypt, they grumbled. God delivered them out of Egypt miraculously, and they get there, and in no time, they grumbled that they're out of Egypt. They got leeks and onions there at least. We're hungry, God. Grumble, grumble. And so he feeds them miraculously day after day after day with the manna from heaven. And then they grumble. We want meat. God says, I'll give you meat. Come out your ears. So Paul writes to us. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay. Paul is not saying, Christians, you're going to be sinless. He's not saying you're innocent and never guilty of sin in your life. How do we know? Because we're supposed to know the Bible. He's not using these words out of the blue. He is drawing the language of verse 15 there. Blameless, innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and Twisted generation. He's getting those words precisely from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. Turn over there. Which, at the end of 40 years, this is in the midst of what is called the Song of Moses. And after 40 years, it's referring to Israel in their constant murmuring grumbling, complaining, unbelief. But in order to get the context, before we come to verse 5, let's read, start, start with verse 3. Feel the words. Moses writes about God. 
For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. I will ascribe greatness to our God. The rock. Listen to him. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness and without sin or iniquity. He is just and upright. Then comes verse 5. They, Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul takes that verse and deliberately contrast the Philippian believers up against Israel in the desert by not grumbling. They are to be blameless without blemish, children of God. Not like the wilderness generation who were, quote, no longer His children because they are blemished. Then, in the second part of Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where Moses calls unbelieving, murmuring, grumbling Israel, he calls them a crooked and twisted generation. Paul takes that and he quotes it directly by implying that Christians replace unbelieving Israel as God's children. And therefore, they are not a crooked and twisted generation. But instead, they are to shine like lights in the world, in the midst of a crooked, unbelieving, twisted generation. And the way that they do that is verse 16, Philippians 2. By holding fast to the word of life. God always had his faithful. Like in the midst of that crooked and perverse generation, you had Caleb, you had Joshua. They held and believed and trusted God. Do not grumble. This text speaks to every one of us who calls upon Jesus as our Lord. Now, I'm going to say it 
you're going to hear me out to the end. But most particularly in our psychological age where more and more people think it's rather cool to say, I'm angry at God. Just being honest. In other words, here's the point. To do that and say that as if it is okay. See, to think that it's not morally wrong to be angry at God is terribly misguided. I think there are two things in our day that drive that at least. And they go for the first is this. There is this idea that, you know, feelings... You can just sit there and not even move and do an act and you can have emotion like anger or joy. Feelings are neither moral nor immoral. They're neither right nor wrong. They just are. Therefore, they're neutral. And so, if you tell people in our day, that anger there towards God, it's wrong. They hear you saying something like, your sneezing is wrong. And they're thinking, you don't use words like right or wrong for sneezing. It just happens. And so also feelings, they just happen. They're not moral or immoral. They're neutral. How in the world could God, you're sovereign, let that happen? It's not right or wrong, I, just how I feel. And the danger in that is thinking that only volitional acts are moral or immoral. And therefore feelings, desires, like delight, or frustration, or anger. They, they're not, they're just, they're feelings, they're not acts. They, so therefore, they have no moral significance. And it's that kind of thinking that may be causing many people to not be seeking to be transformed at the level of the heart, of feeling. And that makes for a superficial Christian at best. The Bible, in the Bible, many feelings are treated as bad or as good. And they're good or bad depending on their relationship to God. If feelings, you're alone, there's no one to see it, you have, you're not doing any action towards another horizontally, and you're in a mountain sitting by the water brook, and you have feelings that, that, that are coming from 
the reality that God is true. God is merciful. He's valuable. That's a moral issue. Those feelings are morally good. Like Psalm 37, 4, where the Lord says, and here you again, all alone by that little babbling water brook in the mountains. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight. That's, a, that, that's feeling. And when you do, it is morally good. But if your feelings, on the other hand, suggest that God is false, God is foolish, God is unjust, He's evil, then those feelings are bad. Anger at sin. Anger at evil is good. Anger at goodness, anger at justice is bad. And that's why it is never right to be angry at God. To grumble at his ways because he is always just. He is always holy. He is always good, no matter how strange or how painful his ways seem to us finite, sinful creatures. Anger. And grumbling at God signifies God is bad. Or he is too weak. Or he's cruel. Or he's unjust. And that is sin. When Jonah and Job got angry at God, God rebuked Jonah. And Job repented in dust and ashes. Now, there's a second assumption. It's very dangerous. It may lead people to say, no big deal. It's okay to be angry at God. And that is this. That you know what? God is God. And therefore, there are things that God does and things that God allows that we ought to be angry at Him for. Thus, it's okay to grumble at God. But as painful as His sovereign providence can be, we who have fled for refuge in His Son, Jesus Christ, are to trust that He is good. And to resist by the help of the Spirit to not get angry at God 
the temptation to get angry at God arises especially in suffering. Disease threatens the hopes that you had. While you're in Canada, you get a call from Louisville, Kentucky. Your 20-year-old son is dead. Or a love interest in relationship goes bad. And you know, because you're a biblical person, you know God said, for instance, in the song of Moses, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, verse 39, See now, that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And so the question is this. Are these acts that God confesses to a reason to justify our anger at God? Or Job chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. And Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, Job is in your hand. Only you have to spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Does God's decision there make Job right to grumble and to be angry at God? Think about the difference between being angry at a thing as opposed to being angry at a person. Okay. Thank love. Middle of the night, going to the bathroom, and you stub your toe on a chair. And we get angry at the thing, and sometimes we even hit the thing stupidly. We're really angry at that situation and that it happened. But we're not attributing anything morally right or wrong to the chair. But when we are angry, at a person, it means we are displeased with a choice or an act that they made or did. You think the person did something wrong. They should not have done that. And that's why being angry at God is never Right. We are, we who are being saved are arrogant, finite, still yet sinful. 
creatures. Two days ago, I woke up and Tim Challies wrote an article. They had been to the United States, had to go back quarantining for two weeks, nuttiness of Canada. And in the midst of what he wrote, hear these words. Remember, dear brother, Eileen and I agreed from the moment we learned we would be walking this difficult road, we agreed that by faith we would let our son go. That by faith we would accept that God had taken him. The God, with the power to give him to us, had the right to take him from us. And these are his next words. We agreed we would not grumble. Because he knows Philippians 2, verse 14. We would not grumble. We would not shake our fist at the sky. We would not charge God with wrong for taking our son or for any of the difficulties that might follow. But we would grieve. We would lament. We would express the troubles of our souls. So before I close, let's met, I'm going to now hear me make it crystal clear as I can. I, in anything I have said, am not at all saying that it is never right to acknowledge your anger at God. That's different. And I have had anger, sinful anger at God in my Christian journey. And it's never right. So in other words, what I'm saying is this. I do not mean, well, if anger arises, take it and hide it. Stuff it down. Don't acknowledge it. And go ahead and just walk like a hypocrite. That's not what I'm saying. But if we do experience sinful emotions of anger at God, what we should do is run to Him. We, we, we should be open with Him and confess it. As thoroughly and as articulately or as emotionally as we can, because he knows it anyway. There's a difference between saying, be blunt, honest with God. Yes, that's different than saying, it's neither right or wrong to feel this way. Be open. Be sorry. Ask the Lord to change your disposition and your feelings to, to get your heart in line with what you know to be the truth of who He really is. Ask Him to instruct you in the ways of goodness. Don't hide any thoughts or any feelings in your relationship with God. That is just stupid. He can take it. 
We run to Him with all of our brokenness. But in your openness with God, ask Him to help you put away your anger or grumbling or complaining by faith in His goodness and wisdom. As Paul says in our text, by holding fast to the word of life. And the word of the Lord to us then is, do all things without grumbling against God. Yes, we may cry in pain, in agony, my God, my God, where, where, where are you? But we will follow soon with into your hands I commit my situation and ultimately my spirit one day. Let's pray. Father, even now, we lift up Tim and Eileen Challies and their other two kids, the family, the friends, the fiance, brothers and sisters in Jesus, and we beg of your grace and sustaining in the midst of such horror in this life. And we pray, Father, that you draw us ever, even in times of peace, that we would draw to you, for a valley is coming, that we be faithful and true and shine as lights, not as, but in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, to the glory of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen.